0: don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church that's under attack there is a reproach that comes of being a follower of christ we in america have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture a church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with christ The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The whole business. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in. Political correctness, one of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. We have a very very interesting subject to cover today. But first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms like our fan page on Facebook. When you type in at Our Mighty Fortress, that page is growing more and more every day. And feel free to like and subscribe to follow our content. You can also take a look at our website at OurMightyFortress.com. We also have a lot of media there where you'll find all of the articles and videos and even a link to our merch stores where you can help support the work. If you feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through the website and the established PayPal link. If we've helped you in some way through our work, you can also tell us by emailing us at ourmightyfortress gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today I would like to talk about a subject that is near and dear to Christians, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This subject has been quite controversial from the time that he walked on earth and it is a very distinct point of difference between religions. The resurrection is more than just a historical event, rather. It's a very significant event that changed the course of human history and has its effects even to our modern day. There are many scholars through the centuries, from the first century church until all the way to the evangelical seminaries of today, that debate and write about the significance of this event in history. This event is so significant that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the Christian faith, in that if it did not take place, then the entire foundation for eternal life would fall apart. This event in history is also so very unique that there was no other religion in history that places such a great emphasis on the resurrection of a deity. There was also no other religion in history that has an event anywhere close to the resurrection story of the Bible. We'll talk more about that later. There are great ramifications if this event did not take place in history and how could there possibly be victory over death or the grave as the Bible says if it did not happen. This is truly an amazing divine task to define the law of nature and bring a lifeless body back from death. But what was the purpose in God's overall plan? We're going to examine the resurrection account of Jesus Christ and we're going to analyze the resurrection concept found in the old testament take a look at the actual event of the resurrection of jesus christ in the new testament scriptures and really show how it is very distinct compared to what the world around him says and even today this will illustrate the plan of god throughout history and his plan for mankind to take part in the great salvation he has in store With that introduction, let's get right into this. The first thing that I want to look at is the resurrection story versus pagan beliefs. The pagan belief is that the basic tenet of man's existence and experience is that once man has died, they do not return. Within pagan myths, the concept of resurrection just wasn't allowed, especially in Greek mythology. An example is given when the Greek god Apollo tries to bring back uh, a child from the dead and Zeus himself punishes both of them with a thunderbolt. The ancient writer Virgil wrote about some of the sons of God that were loved by Jupiter being lifted up to the heavens to be with him, but the rest had to go through the doors of the underworld like everybody else. The ancient writer Homer, in his the Iliad said, quote, bear up and don't give way to angry grief. Nothing will come from sorrowing, sorrowing for your son, nor will you raise him up before you die. End quote. He was basically saying that your son who has died, talking to this particular person, is not going to come back from the dead. There was some allowance in ancient Egyptian writings about life in the underworld, but not resurrection of the individuals coming back to life when they left. The famous example that is often misquoted by atheists is the story of Osiris and his supposed resurrection. Osiris was not resurrected, but rather became a gatekeeper of the underworld, which is a complete opposite of what it actually means to be resurrected. In the time of Greek thought and philosophy, the contemplations of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle brought the idea that once somebody died, the soul and body could never again be joined back together. The Apostle Paul experienced the mocking and ridicule uh, with the contempt for his preaching of the resurrection, when he was at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, Paul, who was quite familiar with the Grecian thought, took the opportunity to preach to the Greeks of Athens about the unknown God that they had made as uh, a platform uh, to. When he preached of the resurrection, the philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics mocked him, but some were curious of this new thing they hadn't heard of in dealing with this unknown God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9 in the Old Testament, King Solomon stated that there is essentially no new thing under the sun, and that everything that exists, not only in his day, but even uh, principally in the modern day, is just rehashed from previous times. While there's truth to that overall, it's not necessarily true in the absolute sense. What do I mean? The concept of the resurrection was distinctly claimed by the Lord alone. You did have people rise from the dead in the Old Testament, so in a sense, uh, the Lord himself claims that unique status. There's no other uh, little g gods or deity stories that ever have such a thing take place. This is distinctly of the one true and living God. This story is very distinct. And the uniqueness of God is really proclaimed uh, by this gospel story and is really what sets him apart from all the little G gods of various religions or philosophies known to man. The resurrection of not only the Messiah, Jesus Christ, but of mankind to either everlasting contempt or everlasting righteousness is distinctly Judeo-Christian. Let's next take a look at the resurrection as described in the Old Testament. In the book of Luke, chapter 24 and verse 44 in the New Testament, Jesus said, looking back to the Old Testament, he said, quote, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was here with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. End quote. If anyone is going to understand the resurrection story and purpose told in the New Testament, then they have to go back to the beginning with the Old Testament passages speaking of the resurrection of the righteous. Not only the resurrection of man to eternal life, but also to eternal damnation. According to one theologian, he said there are at least four foreshadowing events of Christ's resurrection found in the Old Testament and they occur within the Pentateuch. The first type of resurrection is found in the priesthood of Melchizedek. You see that in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. Melchizedek, which literally means in Hebrew, king of righteousness, brought out bread and wine to Abraham after his victory rescuing Lot. The bread and wine were pictures of the flesh and blood of the crucified Messiah. The second type is with the two birds in Leviticus. That's Leviticus 14, 4 through 7. One bird was to be killed over running water in an earthen vessel, while the other was to have it dipped in the blood of the first bird that was killed to picture being cleansed, and that was to be released into the field. This pictured Christ's death and resurrection. We see that Romans chapter four and verse twenty-five, since there had to be a cleansing for sin that only God could recognize through the blood of His precious Son. You can see that reference in Hebrews nine eleven through twenty-eight. The third type and picture is found within the first fruits of Leviticus 23 verses 10 through 11. You can read about that story where the grain was uh, supposed to be brought uh, after the harvest before God. And Christ is the first fruits in the resurrection. That's in First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 23. The fourth picture is Aaron's rod that budded, and you can see that story playing out in Numbers chapter 17 verse 8. This was the picture of Christ's resurrection and his authority as high priest. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that correlate with the resurrection of the human body, like Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which states, quote, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, quote. There are also several prophecies that allude to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, It is also very important to note that while the crucifixion uh, and that plan for the atonement of sin was not known to anyone but God until its actual happening, there are allusions to it that give a hint as to what that plan is, like in Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, which states, quote, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth, my flesh also rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither would thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. End quote. King David definitely believed in his own resurrection one day, but both the apostle Peter and Paul quoted this scripture when referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can see that in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter thirteen. Psalm 22 is another scripture passage that alludes to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's pretty uh, specific. The Old Testament believer would not have understood this concept at this time as it was not revealed unto them. But the benefit of the modern reader is being able to look back into history and seeing how things played out and what God intended to happen. Many times when the revelation came down, the prophet didn't completely and totally understand everything that was being said. It's just that sometimes we forget that because we have the benefit of looking back into history and seeing the grand scheme. But you have to put yourself in their shoes. It, they just didn't always understand that. Very few of the prophets did, especially when it was concerning the future. It should be noted that not even Satan himself knew of God's intention with the whole going to the cross— Otherwise, Satan would have tried everything to prevent Jesus going to the cross instead of pressing it forward to happen. You have to, we have to remember that Satan is not all-powerful, all-knowing, or omnipresent. You know, he didn't know the plan of God. That's what Paul was talking about as far as the secrets from the foundation of the world, especially in dealing with the church. Even among the Jews in the Maccabean period, which is just before the New Testament, a division within the Sanhedrin arose with the Sadducees, and then you had the Pharisees. Each of those two particular groups have very distinct beliefs when it comes to the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and spiritual miracles, but the Sadducees didn't believe uh, in any of the above. You can see that in Acts chapter 23, verses 7 through 9. Although there were some scholars that stated the Sadducees hold to the soul perishing along with the body and not necessarily that they do not have a soul or that there's anything spiritual. So some of them said, well, maybe you have a soul, but it dies with your body. But the fact is you have two distinct divisions arise Uh, just before the time of Christ, hence why the Bible mentions Sadducees and Pharisees. By the time of the arrival of Christ, there was very much a doubt among the Jews whether the resurrection was actually going to happen. In the Old Testament, God told man over time about the end of days, though he didn't go into specifics, and he did that for a reason. And that was because of Christ and the cross and the story that was going to play out, especially in dealing with the church. As the bits and pieces of God's sovereign plan was unfolding in its relative time, Old Testament priests and prophets began to understand more about God's intentions. This is much of the reason why Jesus made several references about reading the books of Moses and other scriptures about what he was actually fulfilling in his day now let's move on to the resurrection in the new testament and how it's the climax of victory over death and the grave by jesus christ when christ taught about what would take place in his betrayal crucifixion and glorification the disciples not only did not understand the various aspects but they refused to believe such it wasn't until after the ascension of christ that the disciples remembered what he had been telling them all along. The doctrine of the resurrection was demonstrated in the New Testament and can essentially be broken into several parts. The first deals with Christ's predictions of the event to take place. Many times, Christ gave direct declarations regarding his own resurrection, but the disciples couldn't comprehend it. One theologian notes that even John the Baptist was given no clear comprehension of the death and resurrection of Christ, as they all believe that the arrival of the Messiah was a fulfillment of the end times. Now, this is actually pretty fascinating because remember that John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries and they are related. I think they were cousins. That also means that Jesus did not communicate anything about the plan that was to set forth as he was growing up even john the baptist didn't even know and that was his that was his family right the second part of his resurrection was subject to the validation of proof what do i mean given that the jews believed in the final resurrection and not anything before it they were not um apt to believe the resurrection story even with the valid proof uh, before their eyes with christ's risen body of course Lazarus was raised from the dead, and yet the scoffers still did not believe. Once he rose again on the third day, talking about Jesus, the message of hope was set in its foundation. The third part of the actual resurrection itself, in dealing with how this wasn't only just a great power over nature itself, but it was a great demonstration of the power of Almighty God. The last part is demonstrated with the resurrection and how it was going to be a commemoration of the Lord's Day. The Sabbath was the seventh day and was the example that God had set out on creation. You see that in the book of Genesis chapter 2, Exodus chapter 20, and even Hebrews uh, chapter 4. That's all pretty fascinating because we start to see that God is weaving little things here and there throughout history to show the overall plan. We also see the resurrection as described and detailed in the letters and writings of Paul. It's very important to his overall theology that he lays out, and he lays it out very specifically. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians both date around, you know, between 49 to 50 AD, which is after Paul's visit to Thessalonica on his first journey to Greece. You can see that in Acts chapter 17 he tries to focus on the Thessalonians about faith and how they need to have faith in the true and living God when compared to the dead idols that they once served in paganism. Then he moves on to focus on Jesus' resurrection and his presence in heaven among with his future return and deliverance of his people from the wrath of God. In verse 13, he states that he does not want them to be ignorant, but rather... That those who have fell asleep or have died will rise again along with those who were still alive to be caught up in the air meeting with the Lord at his return. He states that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a great shout and with the voice of an archangel with God's trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first. This passage has caused much debate as to what Paul exactly meant, especially in dealing with the dead that were to rise. Another theologian writes that, quote, Paul clearly indicates that those who have died will, at some future date, be raised from the dead in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. The idea is that the resurrection is something new, something the dead do not presently enjoy. It will be eternal life after death. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul brings the great reference to the resurrection and the purpose of the saints there in the city of Philippi. The initial statement of thanksgiving by Paul tells the Philippians that God, who began a good work in them, would bring it to completion in the day of the Messiah or the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul stated that he would rather be with Christ, but that the need for him to be in the flesh was much more, uh, especially for being a benefit to the church that was being built. Paul appealed to the Philippian Christians to live worthy of the gospel in their public and their civic life. Now, that's very important because Paul tells them to be good Christians and live out the gospel, uh, not only just in church, but into the world. And that also means for their jobs, too, and that goes for the government because he did witness to government officials. Now, that's kind of important and relevant for our today's culture, but that's another story. Now, this, of course, is despite meeting the persecution or rejection from unbelievers uh, in that city, but the church kept on, kept pressing forward. The whole concept points towards a deliverance from this world found within the resurrection and uh, the church of salvation. With the church that was in the city of Corinth, there were those who arose that said that, hey, there is no resurrection of the dead. Now you have to keep in mind that it, the city of Corinth was a significant Greek city, and so you still had a lot of philosophers that taught that there was no resurrection of the dead. The Apostle Paul's response in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 58, it really constitutes three parts. Reestablished the commonly held ground that Christ arose from the dead, taking up the two contradictory positions of Christ's resurrection and the denial of the believer's resurrection, and finally, how exactly the dead are actually raised. Because of Adam, all men die in this world due to sin, but in Christ, those that believe in him were made alive. Paul gives a discourse starting in verse 20 on the resurrection of the dead because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, that set in motion events that believers too would then be raised at his second coming. There was also a parallel between Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15 in that Paul states that the resurrection takes place at the return of the Lord. Gordon Fee, a particular theologian, states that, quote, When that occurs, that is, and the final enemy is thus defeated through the resurrection, then God's being all in all will have been actualized within the framework of our human history. End quote. That last enemy that will be defeated will be death itself. He then goes on to say that if there is no resurrection and if the dead are not raised at all, then why even baptize believers? We see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34. Finally, Paul deals with the argument of what the bodies will be made of, basically essentially refuting those who doubt the resurrection because they'll say, well, if you rise from the dead, then what kind of bodies are you going to have? Well, Paul uses strong language with these questions as he addresses the philosophical objections he says in his example of how grain is sown in the field and must die before it rises again into the actual growth of the plant and is likewise, you know, compared to man's bodies. Gordon Fee states that, quote, Paul's concern is with death as the precondition of life to come, not in the sense that all must die, but in that in the sense that the seed itself demonstrates that out of death a new expression of life springs forth and quote the assurance of triumph is given in first corinthians 15 and the conclusion of the matter is this with the victory of jesus christ over death and the power of the grave now we first started with looking at some comparisons of various pagan beliefs then we looked at the resurrection the old testament and the resurrection of the New Testament. Now, I want to give a defense of the doctrine of the resurrection. Much has been written on this, and you can uh, see such uh, defenses by men such as William Lane Craig. But I want to take this just a step farther and looking at various different sources and and help build the faith that Jesus truly did rise from the dead, as the scripture said. We in our modern time and uh, the post-enlightenment thought has cast much doubt upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and modern skepticism tries to put the, quote, nail in the coffin of supernatural thought. This, of course, is not the first time the resurrection of the dead came under extreme attack, as it hadn't been long after the apostles passed off the scene that the early church fathers had to contend for the faith in this matter. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, in his writings Dialogue with Trifo, said to the doubters, quote, But these filthy garments, which have been put on by you, on all who have become Christians by the name of Jesus, God shows, shall be taken away from us, when he shall raise all men from the dead, and appoint some to be incorruptible, immortal, and free from sorrow in the everlasting and imperishable kingdom, but shall send others away to the everlasting punishment of fire. End quote. Now, this is pretty interesting because there are those who say that the concept of hell was a Catholic invention later, but we see the early church fathers uh, reiterate this type of thought coming right out of the scriptures, especially with what Jesus had, uh, had taught. The doubters of the resurrection of Jesus Christ have come throughout history, but there are several facts that one must address when dealing with the subject it's through the study of these facts that you can come to the conclusion that Jesus's tomb was indeed empty and that he did truly rise from the dead. These are some of the arguments that are presented over time, but uh, you can read a more concise version with William Lane, Link- uh, William Link Craig's writings on this particular matter. Now, the first fact is that Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb and not only a borrowed tomb of just any individual, Rather, it was Joseph of Arimathea who was part of the Sanhedrin. This means that the tomb's location would have been known publicly due to the power and prestige of the Sanhedrin. The second fact is that the tomb was found empty. When cross-referencing the Gospels, it is clear that Jesus' disciples came, all came, to the conclusion that the tomb was empty. A Christian movement would not have started if there was a body still in the tomb, and thus it makes the historical accounts found in the Gospels more reliable. The disciples could not have just made a, made up the story and then lied because they would then die for that same lie that they knew they had fabricated. See, someone could die for a lie from somebody else, but if you knew that you are the origin of the story, I don't think there's any account in history that someone would actually die for a lie that they made up. Another significant aspect is the tomb was found empty by women, which was not culturally acceptable for women to claim anything publicly. The fourth fact is that the story is so simple and clearly lacks theological embellishment. You got to think about that. The story is very simple and concise. As with most myths or epic stories that give glorious and amazing events that transpire within history, the story of the resurrection lacks all of that luster. There is no glorious bursting from the tomb or some elaborate divine story with embellished events. Rather, it is simply told that Jesus rose from the dead. The fifth fact is the early Jewish polemics presuppose an empty tomb. The Sanhedrin remembered what Jesus had said about rising from the dead, and they made sure to set Roman guards outside the tomb to try to keep the disciples from stealing his body. This is essentially the same lie that perpetuates even to the modern day because it's just easier to believe this than rather having an actual resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul gives an actual list of eyewitnesses in order that Jesus appeared to peter and then the twelve disciples and then to the younger brother james and five hundred other witnesses and finally then paul himself it's also important to note that the original disciples sincerely came to believe that he rose from the dead the general jewish belief was that there was not a rising from the dead before the general resurrection at the end of the world These men, in fact, came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for that belief, and thus making the account of the resurrection that much stronger. The question that must be asked is what caused these men to believe such an un-Jewish thing? There are many that will say that there was not a record of Jewish customs releasing prisoners, especially during the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But this is not an actual argument given that Rome dealt with different peoples uh, at, with various methods at different times, basically to appease them and kind of keep the crowd down. This is especially true given the nature of the Jews during this time uh, and the zealots and the things that would uh, peak to all the problems that arose with the rebellion that the Romans had to put down in 70 AD. In conclusion... When you look at all of the events and all of the, uh, the the scriptures that compile the resurrection story, one must take great care not to only analyze the scripture, but also rationally study the events of history to come to their own conclusions of the matter. Not only does the Old Testament give a witness of the resurrection from the dead, but also the resurrection is a fulfillment in part with Jesus Christ in the New Testament, And you're going to see the grand culmination at the end of his second coming. One can take confidence in the fact that Christ not only rose from the dead, but that those who are born again the Bible way will also take part in the resurrection from the dead at his second coming. This promise was given and was set from the foundation of the world through the sacrifice of God's only son. We see this in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, which states, quote, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Quote. This is talking about when Christ returns and you have the millennial reign and, and the things are going to transpire after that. We can be rest assured That the resurrection story has a perfect rhyme and reason and it culminates with god's grand redemption at the end and the judge that will reign over all and the the sin that will be wiped away and there shall be no more tears no more sin no more uh, heartaches and the believers will live with christ forever i want to thank you for listening and be sure to follow us on the podcast media Please take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.